Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Not in his worst nightmares would he have ever envisioned that he would get to a place like where he was at. His parents had totally walked away and had no interest in him. His friends had turned their back and really saw him as a traitor. And honestly, when he looked at himself in the mirror, man, he didn't like what he saw. And he knew when he would sit at his job in the, in the middle of town and people would walk by, he knew what was on their mind as they saw him. Man, traitor, sellout, enemy. And if he could have gone back in time and done some things differently, he would have done it in a second. But it was too late. He had chosen where he was going. One day, he's sitting in his job as a tax collector, which the people there had even taken them as a whole nother level. There was the sinners, and then there was the tax collectors. And he's sitting there, and there's a commotion of a lot of people coming towards where he's at. And he asks around and finds out it's this guy named Jesus, who he'd heard of, but he'd never seen before. And he's kind of watching from the outskirts of this group as hundreds, hundreds of people are watching Jesus. And as Jesus is speaking, he gets interrupted. And this, these people come up with this paralyzed man on a mat, and Jesus allows the interruption to happen and simply looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And Matthew, this tax collector from his table, He's not expecting that, and he laughs out loud. You know those times you laugh louder than you expected, and people from all over look over at him, as well as Jesus. And he's immediately embarrassed, slinking down into his seat. But then Jesus looks back at this man and says, hey, just to show you that the Son of Man can forgive sins, he turned to this man and said, get up and walk. And this man who'd been born paralyzed jumps out this mat and starts dancing around and people are going crazy. What's this happening? And Matthew at his table is going, you know, what in the world? And then he looks up and Jesus is standing right in front of him. And he's looking right at him. Matthew kind of looks around and he says, is this really happening? And Jesus comes and puts his hands on the table, leans in close and says, follow me. And Matthew, not, not really knowing who this Jesus is or where they'd be going or what they'd be doing or why he would select him out of this group in the first place, instinctively stood up and followed Jesus, believing that this was probably the most important invitation that had ever been given to him in his life. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jim, and I am pumped to be here with you guys. And um, I believe this, that the invitation that Jesus gave to Matthew is a similar invitation he's gonna give to us today. And as it was life transforming to this tax collector, it's gonna be life transforming to us in this room. And when I think of the word invitation, I immediately think back to my senior year in high school. All my buddies were going to the prom and honestly, there just wasn't a girl that I wanted to spend a couple hundred dollars on. And so uh, 
I was like, no, I'm not going. But they just kept on like, come on, you got to go, you got to go. So finally I said, okay, I'll make a deal. I'll ask one girl, and if she says yes, then I'll go. But if she says no, then leave me alone. They said deal. So I decided if I'm going to do it, I might as well go for broke. So I decided to ask this girl who sat next to me in my math class. We weren't really friends, but most guys in the school would have said that she was the prettiest girl in the whole school, like way out of my league. You got to remember, I wasn't the incredible physique of a man you see in front of you now when I was (laughs) back in high school. And so I tracked down her phone number, and I called her because I wasn't man enough to do it in person. I said, hey, this is Jim Britz from your math class. You know, we hadn't really talked much. Uh, And I said, how are you? She said, good. And I thought, that's enough small talk. So then I said, hey, I was wondering if you'd like to go to the prom together. And I intentionally said together instead of with me. Because I thought if I said with me and she said no, she she was rejecting me. But if I said together and she said no, she was just rejecting the thought of us being together. And that didn't sound so bad. So I asked her that. And there was silence on the other side of the line. One 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000, four 1,000, five 1,000. And finally she said, sure, why not? Which in that place, I should have probably had my hands up in the air like, touchdown, no way. But instead, these are the words that came out of my mouth. You know, sure why not's not gonna cut it for me. I'm gonna need either Jim, I would love to go to the prom with you, or Jim, no thank you, but I appreciate you asking. Silence, one 1,000. Two one thousand. Have I told you, by the way, that I was in the corner of my room turning blue? I haven't breathed once in this conversation, lying in the fetal position. <laughs> Three one thousand. Four one thousand. Finally, she says, "Jim, I would love to go to the prom with you." And we went. We had a pretty good time. And I can look back and realize she was one billionth as pretty as my wife Rachel is. But I share that story with you because here's the deal: this invitation that we're going to study today, a sure why not response won't cut it. And if you're going to respond, it's going to mean I'm going to walk out the door differently than I walked in. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 9. It's the first book in the whole New Testament. In fact, the guy that wrote this book is the guy that's in the story. And I'm going to read, starting verse 9, it says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Now, that Jesus approached this guy is amazing just to be, begin with because the tax collectors were seen as the worst of the worst, the bottom of the bottom. There's no way you, if you went back in time and like we could freeze phrase this, frame this scene and pick the person who was least likely for Jesus to select to become a disciple of his to go transform the world, you would have picked this guy, Matthew. There's just no way. It's kind of like thinking about fantasy football. If you've got the first pick in the first round, nobody's wasting that on a backup punter, right? That's Matthew. He's the backup punter. This is huge implications for us. If Matthew is called, that means, well, we're all called. That that God has called all of us. And he has called us and chosen us to be an active part of his mission. This guy, J.D. Greer, who stood on the stage before, he's a pastor on the other side of the country, and he says this about, about it. He says, there's widespread myth in the church that calling into ministry is a secondary experience that happens to only a few Christians. Their job is to do the ministry, and everyone else's job is to just show up and foot the bill. Few lies cripple the mission more than that one. Each believer is called to leverage his or her life for the spread of the gospel. The question is no longer whether we're called, only when and how, where and how. It's interesting in this too, this this invitation, he says, follow me. 
not get in line, not do what I do, but it's this invitation to be with him, an invitation into a relationship that, that ministry is actually gonna come out of the relationship they're gonna have together. Not that the relationship will be the byproduct of simply serving together, but ministry was the goal, or relationship was the goal. The relationship was actually the assignment that he was calling him to. And think about it for a second from Matthew's point of view. So he's obviously shocked that Jesus would approach him. But isn't it also kind of remarkable that he would get up and leave everything, no questions asked? I mean, here's this guy that has a really good job in that culture. 90% of people living in Jerusalem were living underneath the poverty line, but tax collectors weren't. On top of that, it seems like he had a pretty good job. It was easy. He didn't have to work very hard. He just sat there. And he had probably a pretty good retirement plan. He was a part of something bigger, the Roman Empire. So he was going to be taken care of. On top of even that, Jesus' invitation is kind of vague, isn't it? Follow me. Not like, here's where we're going. Here's what we're going to do. You know, here's what's in it for you. Yet he gets up and does it. It's interesting. Anytime you see in Scripture where it says, uh, like, as Jesus went on from there, you always should then intentionally look and go, well, what was there? Because most likely, whatever happens in the next scene, that person saw what Jesus just did. Especially in one like this where Matthew wrote the book, right? So he's intentionally wanting to make it very, very clear, here's how this went down. So what happened before Jesus comes up to Matthew? And simply, Jesus healed this guy that was paralyzed. But I think probably the words that stood out to Matthew more than anything else were the words when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Because Matthew, like he could walk, but, and he had sold out his own people and become a tax collector. Here's a guy probably walking around with a lot of shame, feeling like forgiveness, there's just no way that's gonna ever happen for me. And yet he sees Jesus forgive this guy, and then a little bit later he says, to show you that I can forgive, the guy stood up. I wonder as Jesus stood there and he invited him, somehow Matthew had connected standing up with forgiveness and going, I'm gonna follow you because I believe probably at the end of this path is, and the shame that I'm carrying is now gonna be forgiven. I'm gonna be able to see God do that in my life. You look at this invitation from, from Jesus, it's simply this. Jesus' invitation was, was from sitting to following, right? We'll play the scene here for a second. Matthew's sitting there in the audience and Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. As, as Matthew's sitting there, what response is required based on the invitation that Jesus has given him? Movement, right? He's, he's actually got to be able to get up. He had to make a conscious decision to make a move. He couldn't stay in his seat and actually follow Jesus. And the moment that he took a step, he was now living on mission, but the step of faith was required. For us, God's calling us to get off the sidelines and get in the game, but it requires us consciously getting up, even though it might be a little bit uncomfortable, and taking a step to follow him. That same year, my senior year in high school, I was on the track team. I was one of the distance runners. I was one of those studs. And uh, it was the end of that year, and I grew up in Davis, California, where there's more bicycles than there are humans. And the race was at night, and it was all kind of the quickest guys in the area, and I was gonna run the two mile. And I was sitting at home, kind of nervous and stressed, because I hadn't listened to Pastor Tom's message last week yet. And my dad walks in the door, and he goes, Jim, are you nervous? And I said, yeah, yeah, Pop, I'm nervous. And he said, well, you don't have to be. In fact, you don't even have to run the race tonight. I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about, Dad? And my dad went on to tell me that he had driven over where the race would be, hopped a fence to get on the track, which is a huge deal for my dad because he does not break rules. And then he ran eight laps around the track, the length of my race, every single step of the way, praying, God, would you give strength to Jim at this point? 
give him power at this point. Give him perseverance at this point. Help him make a move at this point. So he said to me, you don't have to run. All you got to do is follow in my steps. Right? That's what Jesus has called us to. Now, ultimately, I ended up having a really bad race. My dad's 5'8", and following his steps really altered my stride. But but you, you got the point. All right, next verse. It says this. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So Matthew, at some point as he's following Jesus, he goes, so Jesus, where are we going? And Jesus says, well, we're going to your house. What's your address again? Let me put it in my GPS. It's interesting. A lot of times when we think of, like, I'm going to put my yes on the table, Jesus, I'll follow you. We think he's going to take us to the place we would least want to go ever. And he may, but most times in Scripture we find it's actually an invitation to actually live out where you live, work, and play in following Jesus, where you're already at. And so for, for Matthew, it's at his home. That's the next scene of where they're at. Now you think about it, who probably provided the food and cooked the food at this meal? Probably Matthew. And he'd had lots of meals before with his tax collector friends, but he was a tax collector before. Now he's a missionary, right, on mission for God. This is the first time where his ability to barbecue is probably used for the mission of God's, of God's gospel. When I go from sitting to following God, Man, God starts doing this internal change within me, and you start seeing your life in, a, in some different ways. There's a ton of them in this passage, but let me just give you two. Here's the first one. God will transform how I use my resources. All right, for Matthew, he's now using his home, right? His, his resources, his food, his, his, his cooking, he does all that. God has blessed me with the stuff that he's given me. Now he wants me to use that for his missions. Maybe it's my finances. At our church, we've got a woman that uh, has said, anytime there's a missionary in town, man, my house is open every single time. Someone else realized that we kept on going through trucks and said, hey, we're just going to buy a truck and you guys can use it whenever you want for the mission. Uh, someone else said, we own some property. If you want to um, park anything, so like a school bus that we use or a, uh, our trailer with all of our stuff, you can park it there. Right? As Matthew did that, it's the same thing. God says, I want to leverage your resources for the mission of God. Here's the second one. God will transform how I see my relationships. Right? He probably had many meals before with his tax collector buddies, but this is the first time where they had religious leaders join them. How do you think Matthew introduced like his buddies with his new disciple friends? Guys, you're not gonna believe it. Earlier today, man, I had my sins forgiven. You gotta meet this guy named Jesus. What do you think he hoped would happen in these conversations between these two groups? I think he realized that for, for what happened to him to happen in his tax collector friends' lives, he was probably the best opportunity for them to ever happen. And if he didn't make the introduction, it probably never would. For us, it's when we join God in a life on mission, we begin to realize that none of our friendships or acquaintances are coincidental. God has placed them in my life intentionally. And I'm going to open my eyes to that. Check out what happens next. It says, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? How crazy, right? Those guys are there. It says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, is it not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick? But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus shares what his whole mission is about he's a spiritual doctor rescuing wounded and sick people physically and spiritually, meaning he came for you. 
Right? He came for me. And he didn't come to judge or to pile on rules that we could never attain to. Instead, man, he came to rescue us. Think about this. For, for Matthew, what if after that meal, one of his tax collector buddies stuck around and said, hey, Matthew, hey, what happened to you earlier today? Do you think that could happen to me? How much joy do you think Matthew got of being able to share this with, with his friend? For Matthew, after leaving that, then he goes on this amazing journey of following Jesus for the next three years where they do all kinds of crazy stuff and miracles and raising people from the dead. And for Matthew, he would have heard this message over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus would have preached every single day on the kingdom of God, where things are as they should be, as God made them to be. In fact, throughout the New Testament, it's mentioned well over 100 times. Over a third of the times it's mentioned is in the book of Matthew. Remember, Matthew wrote this thing. So it starts with, follow me. And then for three years, he hears Jesus talk and live out the kingdom of God. At the end of about three years, the last words he ever hears from Jesus is this. But you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's saying, hey, you've done a great job of, hey, leveraging your resources and your relationships and joining me and rescuing people that don't know me, and that's awesome. But the mission that I'm calling you to is actually bigger than that. It's to Judea and Samaria, meaning to the whole region of where we live, and if that's not enough, to the ends of the earth. And the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples then, he says to us, and I love how Hope Church describes it. We say, so our mission is to reach Las Vegas, the West, and the world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you've been called by God, and he wants you to make an impact where you are, but not just in your city. He wants you to make an impact um, in, in our region and in the world, which makes you then start asking some questions. Like, do you believe that, that how you came here to Las Vegas, that God had some intentionality in that? Like he strategically brought you to Las Vegas and to maybe Hope Church? Or do you believe it was just kind of accidental and it just happened? My guess is a lot of us in the room would say, man, I think there was some intentionality. In fact, as I look back and see the fingerprints of God over the place, he was directing me to where I'm at right now. Think about the amount of resources and money and invitations and all the things that took place to get you to be here in Las Vegas now. The jobs, the opening up of a house, even somebody to invite you to be a part of this community here at Hope. All those things, right? It's a massive work to get you where you are. And there's gonna be like 3,000 people here at Hope this weekend. And God strategically, intentionally did that for all these people. I mean, think of the probably billions of dollars it took to get this group in this room. I know there's tons of languages that are spoken here at Hope in here right now, meaning this. God must be up to something massive that he would go to that kind of work to get all of us together. And that's what we're spending the next two weeks talking about. What does God want us to do together to reach the West? And then next week, what does God want us to do together to be able to reach the world? And so as we talk about the West, then we need to know a little bit about it. And here's a quote that's been said a couple of times here at Hope, but it's become kind of one that I've really latched onto. It says, recent research indicates that only three other nations, China, India, and Indonesia, have more unbelievers within their borders than the United States. Combine that with the fact that 40% of the unchurched population in the United States lives in the West and you realize 
that God has strategically placed those in the region in the center of the fourth largest numerical mission field on planet Earth. And I just thought it was home. And God's going, no, I strategically have brought you here. The population in the West, kind of like Colorado and West, is about 76 million people. It'd be like the 20th biggest country in the world if it was just, just a nation by itself. And of that 76 million, 90% would be those who are lost, who don't have a relationship with Jesus, not plugged into some kind of community, which works out to about 69 million lost people, and we sit right in the middle of it. Go to any city in the West, pull up to an intersection in your car, and statistically speaking, look around at all the different cars there going any direction, and probably you're the only Jesus follower out of all of them in any town you would go to throughout the West. So then you start having the question, okay, so I get it. I'm supposed to leverage my resources, and I'm supposed to, like, look at my relationships differently. But how am I supposed to do that for, like, a whole region? Like, I'm having a hard enough time just figuring out how to talk to my next-door neighbor, let alone 69 million people. And it's so massive that really the response is, well, there's nothing we can do, right? I mean, it's too big. If, if God didn't do something, well, we, have, we really have nothing. Which means, man, the first response is we gotta pray, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But still amidst those staggering numbers, the God of the universe still says, I wanna invite you to play a part in reaching this whole region. And so then you have to look at, okay, well, what do they do in the Bible? And the book of Acts is what happens after Jesus goes back up to heaven. And you see Acts 1.8 that we read actually happened. It moves to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and here's how it happened. The first ever church planting movement on planet earth. Churches started getting planted in all these different cities, places where people never knew God before. There never were churches before. Churches planting churches, planting churches. And the same way that God moved then is the same way that God is moving now. Uh, there's this really famous pastor named Tim Keller, and he says this quote. He says, the vigorous continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for one, the numerical growth of body of Christ in any city, and two, the continual corporate renewal and revival of the existing churches in a city. Nothing else, not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, trunk or treat, growing mega churches, congregational consulting, not church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planning movement. This is an eyebrow-raising statement, but to those who have done any study at all, it is not even controversial. And here's the good news, is that you're part of a church that's known this from day one. In the 16 years of hope, we've got to see over 40 churches planted all throughout the West Man, it's just so exciting. And I gotta tell you, and, I, and I'm part of it. Uh, I, I asked Vance as a, as a church planner, I said, Vance, will you be my pastor? And every Monday as I go for a run, kind of exhausted from the day before, listen to the message. So I'm part of the Hope community as well. And when I heard him talk about this, this next vision of the next 15 years and this idea of lowering lostness in the West by 1%, I was like, What? I started doing some math. That's 750,000 people coming to know God somehow through the, the ministry that happens here at Hope, three quarters of a million people. I mean, can you even imagine? And I, I kind of can because I'm one of those church plants. And I got to tell you, when we planted Parkside three years ago. It's been this amazing experience. And it's also been 
really hard. Like, it's, it's tough. This morning, I got to sleep in. Normally, I got to be help setting up at 7 a.m. at the elementary school where we're at and start doing the numbers. If, if we were to plant churches of 250 people, which is a really healthy church plant, what you're experiencing right here at Hope is not normal. If we were to do that, it would take 3,000 church plants to reach that 750,000 people in the next 10 to 15 years. There's gonna be about 3,000 people here at Hope this weekend, including the babies in the nursery. So here's one way we could do it, is if simply every single person here, whether you're you know, 90 or two weeks old, we just all spread out around the West after today and went and did that and all planted a church tomorrow, we'd be done. Anybody hands up? You ready to roll? Okay, uh, yeah, that's probably not good parenting advice either, so don't, don't go send your kids off doing that. So plan B is, is we realize it's not gonna happen through addition, right? If we just go, let's plant a church here, let's plant a church here, and plant a church here. The only way this could possibly happen is through multiplication, right? We're gonna plant churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. On top of that, we've gotta partner with churches that already existed that have just never thought multiplication, and we've gotta inspire them with this DNA of you actually need to be a part of something bigger than your own church. Did you know only 4% of churches in North America have ever helped plant a church? And I think part of the reason why is because we a lot of times have a wrong view of what the church is. This is, this is kind of Hope's definition of a church, and I love it, the local church. The gathering place to teach about the king and kingdom living and the launching pad for the expansion of God's kingdom locally and globally. So the church is not a building it's a community of people on mission, like Matthew, working together. We're not at a church right now. We are the church. And when we walk out, the church is on the move. When Jesus used the word church, he used the word ecclesia, which meant movement. It had never been used in a religious sense before Jesus started using that word. So Jesus' followers are not simply members of a church. They are citizens of a kingdom that is alive and expanding all over the world. And God wants to invite us from sitting to following and come alongside and, and reaching the people around us and our relationships and our resources. But he also wants us corporately to come together and be a part of something bigger than we could ever imagine. And I'm gonna spend my last couple minutes just walking through three really practical ways that you could play a part in this. And I believe the only way this happens is if we have a whole church that goes, I'm gonna do my part. So three ways, and here's the first one. We will cultivate a heart for the kingdom by praying. The first one is prayer, that we gotta pray. I, a couple years ago, picked up this book by this guy named Ronnie Floyd, and the first sentence of the book was so good, I put the book down, called up my assistant and said, I need you to take this quote and put it in a frame in my office, and I need you to put this quote on a banner, and it's the first thing that people see when they walk into a Parkside service. That's a pretty good start to a book. Have you ever read a book like that? And it's like, oh man, this is gonna take me 20 years to read through this book. Here's the quote. God can do more in a moment than I can do in a lifetime. I mean, do you really believe that? I could spend the next 50 years of my life, right, sweating blood, going after like everything I could, giving everything I have to planting churches. And God could just go, boop, and just do it, right? He could do more in a moment than I could do in a lifetime, meaning, man, not just prayer is a good thing to do because I'm a good Christian. Strategically, talking to the God of the universe who could do that, man, we gotta pray. So one of the ways you could do that is when you walked in, I think on your seat, you got this card here, and it's a prayer guide. 
Would you pray on a daily basis for this? Would you put this somewhere you're gonna see it? Maybe in your Bible, maybe uh, on, on uh, your dashboard or your car? And just go, I'm gonna commit to praying that God would penetrate lostness in the West by 1%. If you're a small group leader, I wanna encourage you after the service to go out to the, uh, the tent and there's a place you could sign up. Your small group could um, adopt one of our church plants. We go, we're gonna intentionally get to know the people in this church plant and we're gonna pray for them specifically. And when they're in town, hey, we're gonna have them over to eat and really get to know them. I, I got adopted <laughs> in between the last service. So I'm already taken, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but but man, prayer's the first one. Here, here's the second. We will prioritize the kingdom by sending. And there's a couple ways the sending could take place for you. One is that you would be a church planner missionary. You, you'd be a church planner. Um, I was at Summit Church where J.D. Greer is the pastor in Carolina a couple weeks ago. And one of the things they said was, we realized a couple years ago that we had to get out of the church planning business and we had to get into the leadership development business. We gotta raise up leaders. You might be sitting here going, yeah, I'm not gonna be a church planner. That's just not me. And let me just say, okay, okay. But that's probably exactly what Matthew would have said when Jesus leaned across the table to him. But then he followed Jesus for three and a half years at the end of three and a half years, Matthew became one of the biggest world changers this world has ever seen. So who knows? So we want to actually raise up people for this. And we've got a couple ways we do that. One is this thing called M3. It's a three-day intensive where we teach everything we've ever learned about church planning in the last 16 years. And we do it here at Hope four times this, this next year. If there's a 1% chance in your heart you're going, hmm, I wonder if I could do that. Could it be that Jesus is kind of like sitting on your lap going, bo, 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 bo. do I have your attention? I brought you here for this moment. And you would simply go, okay, I'll, I'll sit through this three-day intensive. M3 stands for make disciples, multiply churches, pray for movement. And it might be at the end of it, you go, yeah, that's not my thing. Or it could be, man, that's the first step to a journey you had no idea God had in store for you. Another thing we have, it's through our denomination, is called a church planning pipeline. And they have these Three courses called L1, L2, L3, and for nine months at a time, you have about two hours a week of online work, and the first year is more kind of theology training, and then if you go beyond that, then it's more leadership training, and then after that, it's church planning training, and you meet with, with a group once a month, and so here at Hope, I know there's a bunch of people that are going, ah, I'm not going to plant a church now, but maybe three or four years from now, if I had some training, we've got people at Parkside are starting that in January, and you could... Um, man, go to the tent. They'd love to sign you up for something like that. So first could be maybe you're the church planner. A second could be that you'd actually just go, well, I'm gonna be a launch team or core team member. Josh Carter shared in the video about they couldn't have planted the church without a core team. When we uh, planted Parkside, I thought that the best thing that we'd have to celebrate at the end of year one would be all the people that we saw come to know Christ and get baptized. And it was cool. We saw a lot of people. But at the end of year one, we had a special service. It was our last week in the school. We had outgrown it. And so I got up in both of our services and did a five-minute, here's the story of Parkside. And then I said to the people, you're the sermon. What's God done? And we passed the mic around and people shared all these awesome stories. And this one guy named Jake, who my wife and I had played a part in helping him and his wife come to Christ earlier on, he stood up and he said, you know, a couple weeks ago, I was driving through town late at night and we had a late softball game. And I came up to this intersection where there was an illuminated cross at another church. And I just started to cry. And he's like, get it together, Jake. What's going on here? And he said, I realized in that moment that what, I fell in love with Jesus this past year. And I realized this, 
that having people plant a church with me was the best discipleship thing I'd ever done for anybody ever. Maybe Jesus would want you to be part of a church plant. Even here in Las Vegas, you don't even have to move because we want to penetrate lostness in the city. Maybe part of it is because he wants you to step out of your comfort zone and he wants to do a massive work in you. You could be part of a team. Maybe even a step easier than that would be, a first step would be, hey, I'm gonna be a part of a missions trip this next year to one of our church plants in the West. We're gonna send out teams all throughout the West. There's a team coming to Parkside and Oceanside. I think there's a team going to Hawaii. That sounds like suffering. And, uh, and you just go for a week and, and be used by God to help this church plant and you are playing a part of this massive movement of what we're doing. So first is pray. Second is, is be involved in sending. And the third is this. We invest in the kingdom by giving. I love this line that you guys say here at Hope all the time, that you don't give to hope, you give through hope to impact Las Vegas, the West, and the world. We stole it at Parkside. We say it every single week there. We just say North County. It's good. And I've been so inspired by stories that, that Vance has shared about in the early years and even now where Hope has taken large amounts of money, sometimes like a whole week's offering and just giving it away because God said to. So as we're kind of learning kingdom living, we're a young church meeting in a school and don't have a huge budget and we're learning this. A couple weeks ago with all the hurricanes going on, I felt as I was watching the news, God said, Jim, you need to give this week's offering completely away to a some church plant that's doing awesome ministry in Houston and some church plants that's doing awesome ministry in Florida. I was like, ah, I'm not gonna do that. But I called up our stewardship team so they could talk us out of it because financially we can't do that. And, uh, and they said, yeah, that's ridiculous. Let's do it. And, uh, and so, so, so we did it. And I, I, I shared a couple days before to our church, hey, okay, we're gonna do this thing. And we have this massive offering come in. And to be honest, here was my response. This is so great. Oh, man. <laughs> But really, we got to give it all away. Oh, man. So kind of, you know, I'm not perfect. And, uh, um, and so then we gave it to, God connected us to a church plant that was three years old, just like us, that met in elementary school in Houston, and a three-year-old church that met in elementary school, just like us in Florida. And they used it to help all kinds of people going through suffering. And then the next couple weeks, we've had these massive offerings coming out of nowhere. God provides, right? When you step out, he's got so much more to give. And I guess I just say this. Well, yeah. If you participate with God in giving to penetrate lostness in the West, don't worry. God's got you. He's going to provide for you, and you're going to see him do amazing things. So pray and send and give. Now think about this for Matthew. So, so this invitation from sitting to, uh, to following Probably the best invitation he ever got in his life, right? Probably the best move he ever made in his life. But we got to move. So what role will you play in reaching the West? And here's the deal. Uh, That's a confession. I'm an expert at getting challenged to do stuff and doing nothing about it. Anybody else like that? I'll hear a message on a Sunday and be like, oh, man, my whole life's going to be changed because of this. And then on Wednesday, I'm like, I don't remember what the sermon was about. And I preached it. You know, it's so easy. And so if we walk out of here and, and we don't do anything right away, from experience, what I've found is it just becomes a blur. If we don't have a conscious way of, here's how I'm going to walk out the door different than I walked in, this is not going to stick. So I want to give you some time to respond, because here's the deal. Sure, why not won't cut it to this invitation that God's given us. So close your eyes here for a moment.
And imagine that you're sitting at a table just like Matthew was. And Jesus shows up right in front of you, puts his hands on the table, leans in, and says, follow me. What's the first thoughts on your brain? What's the first thing that comes to mind as he does that? And if it's reasons why you can't, oh, I'm just so busy. That's just not my thing. I'm new to this whole thing. If you knew my past, all things Matthew could have said, but if, if those things come to your mind, would you just take a moment and confess those to God? God, I'm sorry. And then would you proactively just tell him, God, I... I'll pray. If you're calling me to somehow reach the West, I will pray. In fact, and I'll give. Even though it doesn't make sense in my financial picture right now, God, I'm gonna trust you in this and I'm gonna give and somehow play my part in that way. And God, if you call me to go, I'll go. I'll play my part. For some of you, your application is gonna be today as we walk out of the service to literally stand up walk to the tent and just sign up somewhere. Just put your name down somewhere and someone's gonna follow up. Some of you, as you're sitting at this table, you're going, I actually feel just like Matthew. I'm unworthy. God can never forgive me. I've got too much shame that I'm carrying around and all this stuff. And his invitation isn't so much to come and do this stuff with me, it's to come be with me. It's an invitation to a relationship with him. And here's the good news. Christianity is not about getting your junk together and then coming to him. It's about admitting that you got junk and then bringing it to God. And your move is to literally stand up during this next song and find one of the pastors sitting up front and just say, I need Jesus. And your whole eternity could be changed and your forgiveness could be given to God just like that. Some of you, you just got a lot of stuff in your mind right now going, well, what do I do? And come to one of these these pastors, and they would love to pray for you. Can you imagine what God wants to have in store for us? God, take this time. Help us respond as we sing loud and do what you're telling us to do. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.